1: Joining us for Rocks Across the Pond's Welcome to Curling series. This is a group of episodes meant to help people who might be watching curling for the first time at the 2022 Olympics in Beijing better understand what on earth is going on in this unique sport that we know and love. Uh, I know it took forever for me to really understand what was going on when I first started watching this sport during the 2006 Olympics. And I also know the questions that I get when I teach Linda curls, uh, during the Olympic rush. So hopefully people will find this series useful and hopefully it's something that our regular listeners can pass along to their friends who might just be finding this sport in other episodes in this series. We'll go over the setup for Olympic curling, how the game is played, the jargon you'll hear, the strategy you'll see, but this episode is for the people who want to get really into the weeds with this sport Uh, And we're going to dig a little bit deeper uh, beyond what is going on at the Olympics in Beijing here. We're going to talk about the history of the game and how being included in the Olympic program really just changed everything for curling. And in this series to help us make sure that we aren't assuming any knowledge and we are giving you something that can introduce newcomers to the sport. We have invited some friends of ours who are familiar with curling but aren't complete nerds like Jonathan and I to call a timeout on us whenever we fall short of giving a good enough description or we're using terms that need defining uh, or we're just assuming knowledge. And joining us today is Ryan Nagelhout. Ryan is a journalist currently based out of Boston. He's originally from Buffalo and he waxes philosophically about the Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Sabres, and much more both in print and podcast form at The Goose's Roost. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is exciting. So Ryan, I guess we'll start by getting to know you. Tell everybody else uh, where you're from and what it was like growing up there.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm from uh, Niagara Falls, New York, which, as you guys both know, is very close to curling, but uh, there's an international border that's in the way there. Uh so I, I never actually have have gone curling on the other side. Uh I, I would like to. Uh that got a little more difficult in in recent months and I also don't live there anymore. So so the the level of difficulty has has increased a little bit there, but um uh yeah, growing up it was all about football and and hockey. Uh as you guys know, you know, there's no there isn't really a big college football presence there. There's a couple of teams there, you know, there isn't a really big college basketball presence again, a couple of teams. And so it's, it was pro sports. It's, it's, you know, the bills first and foremost, then when I was in high school, the Sabres, you know, well got, you know, very good. And it kind of ebbs and and flows between the two of them, but that was really my, you know, sporting existence. It's what I still write about today. And uh, yeah, that, that is, um, you know, I guess the sports, what it's like growing up there. If you want to talk about like, you know, geopolitical, Uh, things. I can do that too. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's a Rust Belt town. Uh, Niagara Falls is about 20 miles north of of Buffalo. It's, it's its own uh, Rust Belt issues. Uh, I live a couple blocks, lived a couple blocks for most of my life uh, away from Love Canal. You know, the first super, super fun site in America. That's, that's a fun little fact there. Uh, I glow at night. That's a (laughs) a little little bit. I think not many people know, but it's true. You can, uh, you know, put me in a darkened room and I'll give off a little uh, a nice fine light green sheen. So that part I'm I'm lying about. The rest is totally accurate <laughs> though. You can look that up. Uh yeah, what what else what else do you want to know?
2: I think uh, Ryan, I think I grew up in well I grew up in Sarnia for two years, which is it's called okay. Canada's Chemical Valley. So I'm pretty sure I glow <laughs> in the dark too.
0: That's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I know a, a little bit about the sting uh, and uh, and a little bit about Chemical Valley from liking uh, both the Arkells and the weaker than's. So you know, there's enough. There's a, a little bit of slight, Like I don't. Maybe you can probably tell the accent. I kind of have a slight uh, hint of Canada in my accent. I don't have a real Great Lakes honk like most people from Buffalo do. Uh, and and yeah, j- just enough like approximate knowledge of many things in Ontario, but not not anything specific. So.
1: Did you play any sports growing up?
0: Uh, Not not like organized. I did a little bit of baseball and uh, I would play like roller hockey and and things like that. But I never played for a team. I did not have a leather a letterman jacket in uh, in in high school. So, yeah, a a fraud there in many senses, like like most sports writers. I don't even like Bruce Springsteen that much either. So I'm not really a good sports writer either. (laughs) Really, uh, really fraudulent in many
1: ways. But you, had, you have played curling. So tell us how you were first exposed to curling and, and getting started playing.
0: Yeah. So I um, I uh, actually, much like you, it was the Olympics. Uh, it, it was 2002, though. I was in middle school at the time. And uh, my, my body does a, a weird thing. I'll either get a cold uh, in, in winter and it's like a couple of days or I'm just sick for a week and I don't go anywhere. And so this happened in 2002 uh, during, I believe, the first week of the Olympics. And so I was uh, at home and not doing anything. And, and here's a, a fun fact. Uh, the the way that Americans broadcast the Olympics is awful. They, they really schedule everything in prime time and sort of package it in these weird, like emotional moments. And Canada does a little bit of that, but also they just have stuff on all the time. And when it's happening in Salt Lake City, like just CBC would have the broadcast all day of events in real time. And so I watched a lot of the Olympics, nothing else on. And so I learned a lot about mogul skiing and uh, and got to see a lot of things and spoil what was happening later on. Oh, yeah, but also you watching can get CBC
1: of, over the air.
0: Yeah, so I, I watched Hockey Night in Canada a lot growing up. I would love the the late games on Hockey Night in Canada. You know, learned a lot about Calgary-Edmonton and that rivalry. And uh, yeah, it came, came through crystal clear from, I believe, on top of the CN Tower in, in Toronto there. And so uh, I watched a lot of curling. And I, I didn't really know what was going on, but I really enjoyed it. And also, I think it helped that obviously Canada has always a very strong team. And I believe they won the silver that year. And so they were in, in the hunt the entire time. And so you got to watch them not only kind of dominate some teams and have an interest in it, but then, you know, when things got tight, you get, I got to learn at least where some of the centers of power in the curling universe are, so to speak, with an E at the end of that center, by the way, of course, I, I know better.
1: So when did when did you first start playing, and what what was it about the sport that you liked? Uh,
0: I liked that it was a little obscure, um, f- for sure. And also, I, I mean, I think it, it's interesting that you don't you don't think about hockey uh, like a hockey rink as something that has other purposes, right? So there's figure skating, and then there's hockey, and you know, broom ball. I guess sometimes people <laughs> people do that, like in, in college and that sort of thing. But but curling was this to me. It was very like highly technical. Uh, sort of skill that is completely overlooked because it looks, I think to an untrained eye, a little silly. Right. And uh, <laughs> you know, I knew better cause I watched a lot of it, but I also, you know, th- the thing is in, in Buffalo, at least there was just no entry point whatsoever. They didn't have a curling club. Uh, there weren't any places you could go and, and do that. I believe in Rochester, which is about 90 minutes away mm-hmm. uh, down the 90, there was a, there was a club, but the thing about, going and curling is that it's kind of hard to, there's a high barrier of entry, right? Like you can't just show up and say like, I want to do this. Like people that didn't know how to do it, you know, obviously they want to protect the ice that they're on and not, not just bring people in who are sliding around in like, you know, New Balance shoes. And so, you know, you have to find the right time and the right sort of setup to where you can go do this with a bunch of people who have also never done this before. And so that happened in 2014. I'm looking at the email right now. Um, there was a, a small club of people in Western New York that would go across the border and and would play in leagues and do that, and they set up a curling club in Buffalo, and uh, they did it at a place called uh, Riverworks, which is uh, in so just past downtown Buffalo. There's a bunch of uh, grain mills and all of this this sort of hulking, rusting properties that were sitting there, and they were starting to revitalize some of them, and so they had this setup where they were going to put these two outdoor rinks in. They're going to um, make a a grain silo into eventually like a rock climbing thing inside. And it was this big like concert facility. They had these really grand plans for it. And what they started with is they poured two rinks with no covering outside. And that was where the Buffalo Curling Club did their first like learn to curls. And so I signed up. I actually have an email chain I'm looking at right now because I never delete emails. Uh, And with a bunch of my friends and, and we went and did that. And uh, it was it was really fun. We had enough to to play against each other. Uh, we had what eight people uh, and just tried it. Got a little bit of instruction. Uh, it wasn't the you know, we didn't have shoes. Obviously, you had the pads and, and did the, you know, the very remedial stuff. And I, I don't I mean, the scores were very low, <laughs> obviously, because we're, we're not uh, you know, not many things hitting the mark. But it was enough where I remember leaving that and everyone was pretty excited that, yeah, we got to do it. Um, it was also a day where the Sabers imploded. That was when <laughs> it was right after uh, Ryan. You'll you'll remember this. Uh, they traded Ryan Miller the night before, mm-hmm. and then that day on the way to curling, uh, the president of the team quit, and no one knows why to this day. So that was fun. We're all and we're all hockey people. I was you know in the press box the night before writing about this very emotional trade, and then the next night we you know go curling for the first time. So. So that was my my entry. I've done two more learn to curl events. I haven't really hasn't materialized since then or much more since then. And I moved to Boston and now actually there was a a rink right down the street from where I uh, used to live in Boston, which is across from the garden that had curling. And I saw sending you links.
1: I kept sending you links (laughs) to get you you to, to go out there to the what it's a north north side or north. Yeah. North side curling club, something like that.
0: Yeah, and I was I was ready to do it, uh, and this was in February of 2020. And uh, so, oops. (laughs) So I live in now. I live in Dorchester. I I actually do want to sign up. This podcast may inspire me to go. It's it's a 20 minute train ride. It wouldn't be hard, Uh, but I really do want to get back into it because it's a cool facility. It's right on the Charles River. It's uh, it's a hockey rink. It's not as well manicured as some other places. uh, I believe north of Boston, there's a a really good, pretty tough to get into curling club. A friend of mine is in now. Yeah. And uh, so I haven't you know, gotten up there, but I would like to get back on the ice, so to speak. Uh, and maybe maybe this is this is it. I'll learn some history. I'll be able to impress them. And uh, and then, then I'll go from there. All
1: right. So today we are talking about history. Is there anything specific that you want to learn that you can then impress your friends with?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm personally really interested to kind of see. I mean, it, it has very, very old roots. And when when sports get really serious, I always find that really interesting, right? Like, so I'm I'm a pretty big bowler back home. Uh, I would bowl in a, in a weekly league with my my dad and and some family, and it is always really interesting to me how bowling went from like obviously it was very popular for a very mm-hmm. long time, but it got very very scientific in a hurry. And now you know if you really work at it, you can be as as good a bowler. This is generalizing, of course, but you know. Uh, a less skilled person can be uh, as good a bowler and do some things that very, very good bowlers, you know, would really struggle to do, say, 30 years ago, right? Tennis is very Mm -hmm. similar. And so like that, that point where things like accelerate is really interesting to me. So I'm excited to get there in this.
1: And to me, really curling can be broken down into two two time periods, which is pre-Olympics and post-Olympics. And Jonathan here, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that he is a professor in research. He's kind of of his thing. I definitely think Jonathan is much better schooled than me as far as the history of curling. So Jonathan, I know you're more knowledgeable about pre-olympic curling than i am because honestly you experienced pre-olympic curling ouch Um, (laughs) that is a
2: shot shots fired. Um, all right
1: (laughs) so jonathan can you please take us from the 1500s to 1998 in 10 minutes I have one question first.
0: What was it like keeping dinosaurs off the ice, though? Yeah, Obviously, they didn't mess up the pebble, right? That must have been tough.
2: It was tough. Back back when I was a schoolboy in the 1500s, it was tricky. (laughs) (laughs) So Ryan normally writes these long essays, and I tried to start doing that. And then I basically took three hours and got... To the 50s, the 1950s. So, um, so the first half's pretty well laid out, and then we'll probably have to wing it at the end. So, <laughs> all right. So, the 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 first part is that we don't really know where curling came from. It's more of a myth than kind of a clear history. Like like other sports, kind of have a clear founding moment, right? But the earliest records we have of curling they come from the 16th century. So. We have some early curling stones in Scotland from the 1500s, and then there's a pair of paintings by the Flemish artist Peter Bruegel that depict winter scenes of people sliding stones on ice. So that's kind of the earliest visual evidence we have of curling, but they don't have any brooms. And there's a few written records and poems and letters, mostly from Scotland, referring to a game called curling in the 17th century. So the basic premise of curling is that it's really similar to bocce or patanque, which is like a French version of bocce, or what they they call here bowls, or what in North America is called lawn bowling, right, where players take turns delivering an object down a long field of play, and then once all the balls are thrown, the closest to the target wins, right? And so sports historians can actually trace this kind of game back to the Roman Empire, and so that, that actually makes a lot of sense, that all the other sports I've mentioned are all like European sports, different varieties of the sport. So I think it's pretty safe to speculate that curling developed as a modified version of this game. Although I did this sidetrack once I, I read a history of Genghis Khan and in this history of Genghis Khan, apparently when he's a kid, he liked playing a game of sliding stones on ice too. It was the, the, the historian described it as similar Damn. to curling. So maybe, maybe Mongolian origins. I don't know, but basically There's a lot of versions of this sliding something or rolling something a long distance and then kind of people taking turns. And then at the end of that, you count up points based on whoever is closest to to the middle. So, early curling would have been played outdoors on frozen water in both the Low Countries, so what today's Belgium and the Netherlands, and then Scotland. And there's actually a debate about whether it developed in the Low Countries. And then came to Scotland, or came from Scotland and went to the Low Countries. But you know, it's it's pretty clear this is the region where the game came from. And the, the second thing is the origin of the name of the sports, also subject to a lot of speculation. So I've basically heard two versions of this, and if someone's listening, they can kind of write in and tell me what they think. So the first version is the term comes to the way the stone moves down the ice, right? And this is, is what's explained to most people like a, a learned to curl today, is that it gently breaks like a curveball in one direction or another, depending on the rotation on the stone. And so if you're standing behind the stone and it's delivered correctly, it'll appear to curl, they kind of break it in a kind of curling direction. So that's how we use curling today. And that's hence the name curling, right? But the second theory I think is actually more interesting. It's that actually it comes from the sound the stone makes. And if you, you know, you hear that rumbling sound, or it's also called the roaring game. So because the stone slides down the list and it makes this rumbling sound, there is speculation that the Scots called this sound the curl, like, so it sounds a bit like the stone, and that, that the movement of the sound is actually the genesis of the term. But again, that's kind of also, I've just kind of gone around of some historical blogs, and that's like the, that's the subject to debate. So either way, we don't have much of a written record about the sport until the founding of the Royal Caledonia curling club in 1838. So this is when we kind of get official. So we have any questions about the early origins
0: of the game? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I, I thinking about it now that you have laid out that there are, you know, two at least potential uh, reasons for why it's called that. Do you think it's the best named sport? Cause I think football is a little too abstract. There are many games that you're playing with a football, but like curling is, it actually is kind of perfect, right? Like just listen, it's curling and also what the thing is doing. So
2: that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So it's got a good name for itself, for sure. Uh, Ryan, any thoughts about the curr sound and curling?
1: I mean, I would not, I would not put it past the Scots to describe that sound as curl. All right. (laughs) All right. (laughs)
0: <laughs> is it is it the most satisfying sounding sport because football sounds gross. Uh I think basketball is just I mean you, when you hear a game you hear like you know jock jams but if you're actually watching like a basketball game played it's just squeaks and and thuds and that's not very satisfying. I think I think when you like hear a stone you know go across the ice it actually does sound Pretty pretty great. So I, for me,
2: that's my I, honestly. For me, my favorite two sounds are if I'm alone in an ice sheet, I can throw a stone. That's all I hear, and then also just the kinetic sound of one stone hitting another. Especially if I'm by myself when it's quiet, no other games going on. For me, that's
1: just perfect. But yes, agree. And then, like anything, humans come along and ruin it by yelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, yelling's my favorite part, but that's uh... a. <laughs> It's a different it's a, permission.
0: You get permission to yell, though, which is nice. <laughs> it's a
2: great stress reliever. Like a weeknight curling game. Had a tough day at work.
0: Get to yell a lot. Get to yell at people. <laughs> <laughs> and they and they welcome that yelling but, because it's helping them do better. It's nice. Yeah, exactly. It's it's great.
2: <laughs> All right. So back to the 1830s. So the key figure here is Queen Victoria. So she saw a floor demonstration of the game once inner palace in Scotland. I actually find this fascinating because one of the ways we one okay, thing just going to jump out here, Ryan is that like, there's nothing new in the history of curling in the sense that like all the things that like <laughs> grassroots people are doing now to grow the game are things that were done, in, done in, <laughs> in 1830. So right now a really hot thing is for curling. Like how do you take curling to a country that doesn't have any ice? So like right now there's a lot of attempt to bring curling to Africa and so Kenya is hosting a floor
1: curling championship because there's no ice rinks there, right? Okay. In Nigeria, but Kenya is participating.
2: Oh, okay, so it's in that. But so, but you see the see this, and this is exactly how the Scots got Queen Victoria to recognize curling as a sport is they couldn't take her up to a lock, so they they took they <laughs> took a floor version of the game to her palace, and apparently she was amazed by it. And huh. so she gave it a charter similar to the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews Charter. So the the Royal Caledonia Curling Club is what's called the mother club.
0: Okay. Right? Now, I I do have a question here. What what are like the mechanics of floor curling? Because obviously, you know, the the pebbles what's making the the stones curl. Like, how do you replicate that on just a floor?
2: Oh, it's perfect.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Ryan.
1: Kind of don't. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, oh, cool. You've got a you've got a a replica of a rock on some wheels, and you roll it down the down the floor, and it doesn't really curl, but it kind of does, and then okay. it hits the other ones.
0: Well, I th- shouts to Queen Victoria for kind of getting the gist and saying like, "Yeah, you're you're real."
1: <laughs> they do make some pretty. They do make some pretty upscale versions of floor curling where you can kind of replicate the curl with the, the basically the ball bearings that are, that are a- attached to this. Sure. Piece of wood, okay. But uh, obviously it's not the, not quite the same.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: And there's no, there's no sweeping in floor curling because there's really no point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I-, I don't know. I think there's always a point to sweeping, but I'm
0: just a clean freak. So
2: <laughs> they, they make the kids sweep in rocks and rings, Ryan. Have you seen the Caitlin laws video? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you, do you think uh, the the explosion of floor curling is just uh, just like Big Broom wants wants more? Like they're just like fighting back against Swiffer. Like this is too much. <laughs> we can't. We need we need people to know the mechanics of actual sweeping. This has gone too far. Yeah, that's I'm sorry. True. I definitely have like two curling jokes ready. Right <laughs> I'm, using both. Big I'm broom sorry. Pushing back. I'm gonna go. Right. Have a good one. All right. <laughs> All right so the game
2: spread around the world in the 19th century because of the what I'm calling the two I's, so immigration and imperialism, right? So outdoor curling is really popular in 19th century Scotland. They actually built hotels next to ponds to host bond spiels, and actually would have train lines that would end at these hotels. And so th- this is the early tournament, so they're outdoor curling tournaments, so curling terms the bond spiel. And The basic idea is you go on holiday at a hotel and play a curling tournament there and get drunk and have a good time. And actually, one of my favorite places to play is like the last standing version of this that I'm aware of on earth, that um, basically there's a hotel in northwest Scotland called the Northwest Castle in Stranraer, which is really hard to get to. They got a four-sheet club attached to an old hotel. And if you're ever in Scotland, that's the place to go play. So
0: I, I bet the views
2: are just awful. It's t- the views actually aren't that great. <laughs> it's really, like, really? Yeah, it's not. It's Stranraer is not. It's it's seen a it's seen better days as a town, and uh, around there it's great. If you you go for a drive up along the coast, it's spectacular, and you can see some really good okay. views. But Stranraer itself, I would, I can't. The only thing that's good about Stranraer is the Northwest Castle, but the Northwest Castle is fantastic. So.
0: Okay. Now real quick, I've always wondered this. Is, is there a a solid etymology about what a bond spiel is? Like why that word came into use for, you know, tournaments?
2: I don't know. Do you know,
0: Ryan? No
2: clue. It sounds German to me or maybe Dutch, but good game maybe.
1: Good. Yeah. What I heard was like good game or good curling. Yeah. Ah, okay. It does bon, sound bon vaguely speech. Dutch.
0: Yeah, my last name is Nagelhout, so I, I should know what sounds
1: Dutch, yeah. but,
0: even, if it, even if it might not be. So,
1: But I could not give you an official explanation. I okay. can only guess. I can only offer conjecture. Yeah, I accept that.
2: <laughs> all right, so the other way they'd curl is this. The RCCC, so the Royal Caledonia Curling Club, would host a grand match, which was an outdoor competition involving all the clubs around Scotland and it'd be played on a large, what they call lock, which is lake for our North American viewers, <laughs> on a single day, and so they'd have like a thousand games going out on this giant frozen pond. And actually, the last version that they did here of that was the 1970s, just for like obvious reasons. It doesn't doesn't freeze all that much in Scotland anymore. So they, but there's, I've spoken to some Scottish curlers, and they're they've all like eyeing it, like waiting for like a cold snap where it will be possible to do this. And then the word's going to go out and they're just going to do it apparently. So.
0: Yeah. yeah I, I was actually wondering when you're saying that, like do, do curlers like to go outside? Is it like the, the winter classic? Cause I know like outdoor skating, like your skates just get ruined. You have to get them resharpened all of that. Obviously the, the sort of, you know, getting a, a clean, good sheet of ice in, in winter when it's frozen outside is I'm assuming much harder. It's harder to like manicure. Like do people like going out there for like the whimsy or like the spectacle, or is it like actually fun to curl on that kind of sounds like a nightmare.
2: It's a bit, it's a bit of a nightmare. Like the one, the one place. Okay. So the one place they still do it is New Zealand on oh, the South okay. Island, which is if you kind of, it's that's the Northern, the coldest part, right? Cause it's the closest to the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. They do it there still. Um, I've done it a bit in Canada. Like, you know growing up kind of it was just as a joke like come out let's go and play on the on the, on the lake sure. uh it was all right there because it was it was cold it's got to be actually cold and then, were you there ryan when we did this in oklahoma city no yeah the, what's the name of the the energy company that sponsors the outdoor rink Devin. yeah Devin. Devin. so Devin had an outdoor rink and they we did like a A demo there it was that was not good because Oklahoma doesn't get cold enough like you can skate on that but it was like this it was basically slush you couldn't get the stone to go 10 feet so
1: I I will say shout out to the sawtooth outdoor bond spiel just outside of Boise I know that they do that every year uh at least pre-covid they did that every year so there is at least one outdoor bond spiel in the U.S. it's near Boise of all places
0: Yeah, because I mean, the first time I curled was outdoors. They eventually the next year they had put up like boards and a roof, but it was just a sheet of ice and nothing around the first time I did it. And so, you know, it was easy to chalk up any mistake to like, oh, well, the ice just must be uneven. It's not my complete incompetence. But um, now actually, so Buffalo is the terminus of the Erie Canal, as maybe somebody, uh, some of you may know, but they um, put in replica canals now there, basically, because it used to be Uh, they built over this terminus where the sabers played for the first 30 years of their, Hmm. of their existence. So they tore that down and put these canals back and now they have curling stones that are out there. They're not very good, but if you go skate there, you can go and, and toss them back and forth. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not competitive at all, but it is, it is kind of fun. So.
2: Yeah. And so, all right, this is kind of, I guess the next point, right? So like the way curling spread is because of the British empire. So you had a lot of Scots, then started moving to other parts of the world, and they took the game with them. Right? This is the case with like this is the case with immigrants everywhere. They move to a new country and they they bring things from their home country that they miss. So the Scottish immigrants spread it, and so the two early places it spread to are New Zealand and Canada, right? Which are like about as far apart as you can get on the map, but both part of the British Empire. Uh, and the game really took off in Canada. Because there were a lot of Scottish immigrants late in the 19th century, and also because it is very cold there, and so it was very easy to curl outdoors. So the earliest clubs in Canada were both in Montreal, the Royal Montreal Curling Club, which was founded in 1807, and Thistle Curling Club, founded in 1843. And I actually played in both growing up. Thistle, unfortunately, is now a grocery store, which is quite tragic, but... Uh, that's how it goes.
0: That's what happens to all great sporting venues in Canada. Yeah, uh, Maple Leaf Gardens, same fate. The Forum. Yeah. That's not a joke. The Forum <laughs> is now a movie theater. <laughs> anyway. Perfect. Good. Um, <laughs> I now I have a question. Do you have any insight into why you would most people I think would would sort of talk about Montreal as as French influenced, and yet you said it was the Scots that sort of spread curling around. How did that? End up being is it just because Montreal is so big and was such a hub of you know economic activity that everyone ended up there?
2: Uh, that's a different history <laughs> podcast. But uh, sure. long story short, in 1756, uh, the British conquered New France from the French, and so uh, and and while the British government let the French people who were living there, so the French Canadians who are living there, stay um, they also imported a lot of, uh, English speakers and they became the ruling class. And that's, that's why the French and the English don't get along to this day. So anyway, but as a consequence of that, so the sky is, so Montreal was actually kind of, it was a very, the 19th century is a big mix of, um, French, Irish, a lot of Irish immigrants, again, kind of uh, kind of fleeing the Irish potato famine, and then the Scots tended to be kind of like the the capitalist colonial manager class, right? You'd come over and um, they 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 manage things like the Hudson's Bay Company, which was like a big fur trading company, and a lot of the banks, and so they were they tend to be the wealthier people, and so uh, at least in this instance, the Royal Montreal Curling Club must have had wealthy backers, and because it was it's actually a pretty. Even to this day, it's a very wealthy club. So they've got, like, paintings on the wall there from, like, the 19th century of governor generals and stuff. So, um, wow. so okay. the Canadians, they began – the Canadian Scots began curling on the St. Lawrence River and the Lachine Canal. So maybe there's, like, a canal connection between Montreal and Buffalo and curling. <laughs> and – both clubs again, Ryan, this is where like nothing's new under the sun. They're like, they're curling outdoors, which was like your 19th century version of an arena. Sure. So then step two is they, did a, they did a warehouse conversion, which is what all these us curling clubs that want to get their own. <laughs> ice. We're not gonna, that's right. <laughs> so they acquired warehouses and they converted them to curling rinks So again, nothing, nothing new in the world of curling. Uh, This would have been natural ice, right? So they would freeze water uh, on the warehouse floor. And then when the ambient temperature was below freezing, they could curl. All right. And so I actually think this is the first big development because this is the move to indoor curling, right? Before that, it's completely dependent on the temperature. Sure. Yeah. All right. Fun fact. And this doesn't just apply to curling. It applies to everything. The word rink comes from the Scottish word for course. It was originally used to describe a place where curling was played outdoors, but then was transcribed to an indoor facility where any kind of ice sport could be played. So curling curling is where the word rink comes from. Uh, there you go, hockey. Uh, right, so in the U.S., the earliest record of a curling club is 1830s near Detroit. So probably similar kind of settlement pattern there. Uh, and so Detroit is known as the oldest club, uh, in the U S and then in the late 19th century, the game also then spread to Switzerland, Sweden, and Norway, most likely again, by Scottish immigrant immigrants setting up new clubs there. And then the English curling association, which I'm a part of has, has a record of the first match of curling being played on artificial ice being played in Manchester in 1877. So, this is a brand new thing, refrigeration technology. Manchester builds an ice rink, and apparently, the English Curling Association at this point in time went and played a match there. So, the first indoor artificial ice matches in England.
0: Wow. All right. And Manchester became a center for curling once Saudi oil money came in. Is that right? Uh,
2: <laughs> it's <Am> I- no, <laughs> it's uh, the, the okay. But the one of the oldest clubs in England is actually Preston, just outside Manchester. And they just got a dedicated club in the last three years, dedicated rig last three years. But their club goes back to the 1870s. And they're really out there at the rink. They've got they're really proud of the fact they're older than the football club, which is Preston North End. So if you're if you're yeah. a lower league fan of, I guess, the Championship League, but if you're like a fan of like second tier English football,
0: <laughs> there you go. Okay, yeah, cool. So that, that, that's a cool fact. Yeah. All right, Ryan. Now we get to your favorite part. It's the early twentieth
2: century, and the Olympics change everything.
1: Yes. <laughs> But the, not not the not really the first time though. <laughs> <The> <laughs> first time it didn't work.
2: So Corey was in the first Winter Olympics in 20, in nineteen twenty four in Chamonix, France, with teams from Britain, France, and Sweden. Canada did not send a team. It then appeared again as a demonstration for sport in nineteen thirty two in Lake Placid, and there Canada beat the U.S. in a two company country competition, which mm. then took the U.S. Uh, almost a hundred years to avenge. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Playing the long game, there. Playing right? the long
2: game. Uh, at this point in time, there's a little, there's like very little international competition, and it's mostly a recreational game. And it's Canada where the game really evolves competitively. So they set up a system called playdowns, so where teams would have to first win their club competition advanced to a regional tournament then win a provincial tournament and then a national tournament and this begins in the 1920s so for the men the first version of this is what's called the briar it's first held in 1927 and for the women in 1960 it's called the canadian ladies curling championship
0: so until that time largely competitions would just be regional in other countries there was yeah. no real no like infrastructure set up and then it would be oh this is in the Olympics you guys just get to go is that basically it? like is, is that based on you know travel restrictions or I mean just just the difficulty of travel or there just isn't it isn't competitive enough I guess a little bit of both
1: I don't know about the the first couple in shamani and Lake Placid, just because, I mean, those early Olympics were kind of clusters. Like, you hear stories about, like, the 1924 marathon during the Summer Olympics (laughs) (laughs) and all of the insanity. St. Louis. Yeah, in St. Louis, (laughs) and just how, uh, how truly amateur, both in both in name and in operation. Uh, those those events were, I think that, sure. that's probably one of the reasons that you see just like three random countries at the first one and then just Canada and the U.S. at the second one. I imagine some countries got to... The Olympics in Lake Placid, and learned that curling was a demonstration sport, and probably said, "Hey, if you if you'd told us, we would have sent somebody." <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that's kind of how it went down, just because of of how the Olympics were organized, kind of hastily. <laughs> sure. when those first Olympics were,
2: yeah. I I don't even the for early buyers would have been I mean there are there are old trophies like growing up in Montreal there was I can't remember the name of it but there was like something like the Quebec Challenger Cup or something which that went back to the eighteen hundreds and okay. uh it was a it was a cool traveling trophy but it was a club would challenge a club. Okay, I see. Yeah. And like the there's one up here This in England, it's also from the 19th century. And I I was lucky enough to win it in a a bond spiel they've been running for like 100 years called the Iance. And I was lucky enough to win that like five, six years ago. And that trophy goes back. Just to get my name on a trophy that goes back to the 19th century was just honestly just amazing. So,
0: yeah, it's fantastic. Right. So there,
2: there are these like really old trophies that just I think were like you'd have a club. You just. Get the people you write a letter to get the people from the next club over to play, and you play a match and have dinner. And that was kind of how it was early on, I think.
0: Right. But beyond that, there's no real infrastructure anywhere. Like Canada is the first one that kind of puts it together and says, you know, let's put these sort of tiers in place.
2: Right? Yeah. Yeah. So Canada, the briars kind of, I think this, and I'm not quite clear on the early part of it. So, uh i I mean i know the dates and kind of the early idea was that just every province and early on it wasn't even provinces like toronto would have a team or whatever but you'd have teams that were the regional champions and they'd get together and kind of play to decide who was the best in the country and early on it was just a round robin so you'd play all the teams from all the other regions and whoever had the best result would win the win the tournament and so it's in the 1950s where the national championships really take off. It's, it's after the war, and a couple things happen. The, the club game in Canada really takes off after World War II. There's a lot of kind of building new curling facilities in, in suburban areas, and uh, a lot more people pick up the game. And the national championships really expand. And then there's an early attempt in 1957 to apply to become an Olympic sport, but but nothing really comes of it. The more significant events in 1959, and this is where Canada and Scotland agree to play a championship between the winners of their two men's national championships. So over the next eight years, this competition starts to expand. So the USA actually joins second. So it becomes in 1961 Canada, the USA, and Scotland then Sweden in 62, then Norway and Switzerland in 64, then France in 66, and Germany in 67. And it's in 67 that the Royal... And so all these clubs... So the Royal, the thing that they've kind of dropped out of this thread here is the Royal Caledonia Club is still the mother club up to this point. Like, so all these other clubs are affiliated. And Again, when I was growing up in Montreal, our club was a member of something called the Canadian branch of the Royal Caledonia Curling Club. Okay. And there'd be these competitions that again would we'll go back to the nineteenth century and they'd all be kind of RCCC competitions. So like they'd all be that was the initial competitive infrastructure, was the RCCC. Um but then this so the Scotch Cup basically runs for eight years, and then the, the, com- the associations agree to to create something called the International Curling Federation. And so it's in nineteen sixty eight this new body takes over the Scotch Cup. And it's then rebranded the Air Canada Silver Broom. And to be honest, in my mind, the Silver Broom is what they should have kept the title as, <laughs> but because uh, that's—I think that's the best name for a, a trophy, don't you?
0: Yeah, definitely.
2: All right. So, unf- so unfortunately, it's not called that anymore. But the, this event ends up becoming the official World Curling Championship, and then they start adding other ones. So, in 1974, they create a Junior Men's Championship. And in 1979, they create a women's world's championship. And then it's actually only in 1988 that they create a junior women's world curling championship. So some ways pretty, pretty recent.
0: So uh, how, I mean, it seems like there there were women's versions of curling pretty early on. Uh, how, how, how. I, I guess that's the sort of history. I don't. I don't know. Like, was it sort of uh, a men's only sport for a very long time? Was it pretty mixed early on? Like, it seems like. I mean, I don't know if it, it has officially integrated, but there are at least women's versions. You know, in, in the fifties, it seems, or sixties, seventies.
2: So uh, I don't know about super early. So okay, so a couple things. What I need to go. So the Longmeadow Curling Club, where I grew up, they had a very shameful slogan. called that. How social the game, yet how manly! And this was this was in the '80s and early '90s. So, th- uh, and a lot of clubs in Montreal, even even when I was curling in junior, so in the '80s and '90s, were kind of gender segregated in a sense that the evening leagues okay. would be only for men, and they'd have one night a week set aside for the women. So it'd be like, and our club was Wednesday night was women's night, and then you do mixed night on Friday, but that was normally like couples, right? So, actually, in some ways, it actually really wasn't all that integrated, I don't think. Um, but, so, I'm
0: completely wrong, which is good. That's normal Used to that. Yeah. I mean, I think, on,
2: honestly, just like reading the history and these dates, it seems like so that the, the Canadian Ladies is 1960. Mm. My read would be after World War II, you started to get more clubs that kind of had women play at different times of the day. And then obviously you'd have people get more competitive in that area. And so they basically created a parallel championship that way. Sure. Okay. But even, even the thing Women's championship doesn't really like take off as a major event until 1980. And whereas the briar is the, a big event on TV kind of back, back to the fifties. So, okay. Yeah. So it's definitely not super integrated, I'd say, until probably until the 90s, to be honest. But uh, that's a different different thing for a different day, maybe.
1: So that's the end of part one. Please join me, Jonathan, and Ryan Nagelhout for part two, which covers Once Curling Returned to the Olympics and How That Changed the Game Forever. Uh, If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. That's what really helps our show grow, helps us reach new people, and helps us spread the love of this game. So thank you so much for listening, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again real soon.